This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel and Chocolates for Heroes. And it is another beautiful day in the Jewish state. And I, I want to uh, start off this radio show by saying thank you. Thank you, thank you. God bless and thank you, all the guys at America's Web Radio who bring the truth of the Jewish state to the grassroots of the United States. The truth about Israel as this country, this little tiny stretch of land is number one in the world in technology, agriculture and medicine and the vast amounts of humanitarian work that it does around the world. It is amazing and a miracle every day when I travel this amazing country, this God, what I call the God-blessed Jewish labored lands, and I see what has been done here in 68 years for the radio show. So uh, I want to say thank you. We're in the top 20% out of 26,000 radio shows in the United States of America. We're heard around the world and acknowledged by the Israeli government as a media outlet on the same plane, the same level as Fox News, BBC, CBN, whatever you, every media, major media outlet out there. And we've done this in three and a half years. And I'm one person with a few volunteers and countless hours of work. So I want to say thank you to America's Web Radio for all that they do to help promote the greatness of the Jewish state and their fight for sovereignty and security. also want to say thank you real quick to everyone who looks at our social media, who likes it, who shares, who is uh, commenting on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for being there. Thank you for helping spread this message uh, about the greatness of the Jewish state. And I want to also say thank you to all those that are participators, not spectators, in sending chocolates for heroes, where Americans literally send thousands of Hershey's chocolate bars, and they put individual notes on them to the soldiers, to the Israeli soldiers. We love you, we pray for you, we stand with you. And folks, you cannot imagine, we've handed out almost 20,000 chocolate bars in about three years. In the hands of a soldier. When he gets not only the chocolate, but he sees that note from not just American Jews, but Americans from all across the country. We're working on all 50 states. We haven't got there yet. But you can't imagine the joy I find when in the United States I would go to the post office or I'd go to the mail and I'd get bills. But I come to the Jewish state and I go to the mail and I get chocolate. Why in the world would I want to leave? I am blessed every day by God Almighty to be in this amazing land among this amazing people. So, folks, listen. Get involved with Chocolates for Heroes. I'm telling you, it will change the morale of a soldier who was heard from his beginning, from his birth, as he came out of his mother's womb or her mother's womb. Every day he hears how bad the Jews are. But when they see a chocolate bar with a note on it, wow. It changes their countenance. It boosts the morale. It encourages their spirits. And that is the amazing thing about being a, being a part of Chocolates for Heroes. So get your church, uh, your civic group, your friends, your family involved in Chocolates for Heroes. Go to my Facebook page, Insight to Israel, and send me an email how, and ask me, Michael, how can I get involved with just a simple note of a chocolate bar? Cost effective and time efficient. Amazing. You don't have to be rich. <laughs> Anyway, all right, all right. 
Listen, folks, I am here in, uh, in Tel Aviv, the White City, and uh, we have a, a very special guest this week. Uh, Michael. Richard. Huh? Richard. Richard. Richard? No, I mean. Ah, Richard Horowitz. I don't know. I have uh, Richard Horowitz here. He's an attorney, and he does uh, lectures on the militant arm of Islam, if I'm not, not mistaken, specifically ISIS, and, and, and also on the immigration movement taking place in Europe. Am I correct, sir? Have I got that down? That's close enough for the time being. Yeah, we've had time to go into details. Absolutely, absolutely we do. Uh, I want to say, uh, Mr. Horowitz, thank you for being on Insight to Israel. God bless you. Thank you very and and we, gave, uh, we gave you a cup of truth, the Insight to Israel Topics for Heroes Cup of Truth, because there's nothing like the truth, and I have a cup of it every day, you know, five or ten sometimes. But uh, I want to say thanks for being on the radio show, and uh, uh, tell us, start off by giving us a little bit of your background and how, uh, making our listeners familiar with who you are as a person. Right. Well, when I, uh, I first moved to Israel when I was 24, I came here from New York. And I served for six years in the IDF, and then I received a fellowship at Columbia University, which I uh, took, and uh, life as such, the, the one year turned into 20 years, I was a lawyer, and uh, came back to Israel a few years ago when I had the opportunity to do so. But soon after World Trade Center 93, the, uh, the first bombing, uh, I realized that people around me didn't fully understand what just would have just taken place and thought that it's a one-time incident and we don't really have much of a problem ahead of us. So I figured I, uh, I had just finished six years at the Israeli army and, and I know uh, I looked at things a little differently. So it occurred to me that maybe I couldn't speak about the issue. So I asked someone I know who ran a conference if I could speak on, on the issue of terrorism. And then uh, a few other people asked me, and it started spreading. And to, the, to this day, I've spoken in 20 countries about 150 times. Wow. Terrorism and related issues. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, how old are you? Age 58. 58. Wow, you don't even look 58. Uh, I thought you were 54. Most people say 85, but all right. Okay. <laughs> uh, what what years were you in the, the IDF? Eighty three to eighty nine. Eighty three. Did you see any battles or uh, what? Did, what was your experience like in in the IDF? Well, I was in Lebanon. That was about the time when when Israel was. Uh, I went in the army when Israel was withdrawing from Lebanon. So uh, I wasn't in Lebanon, but but uh, the Israeli army. You know, all sorts of units always do all sorts of things. You know, whether whether there's a war going on or not. So, right. so what unit uh, were you in? I worked in the headquarters. Okay. On on, uh, on national security projects. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Uh, so, were you a lone soldier? Yeah. Yes. I came Wh came on my own. Why? That's amazing because well, during that time, you, like lone soldiers had almost no support. We had, there was some. There was some. I don't know what it is today. I'm just saying it's more today than Yeah, there's a there lot of some. lone soldier organizations. Yeah, yeah, there was some. I mean, I came because uh, lots of people my age came. My age, my background, you know, came. One of my friends from high school and college. And uh, I figured out at the time I had a year and a half of, of obligatory military to do. And uh, I figured I'll do it, get it over with, and then move on. 
human life. Um, wow. I, I, went, I went in and I realized, you know, if you, be, uh, if you become an officer, there are like, real, real jobs you can do that might be interesting, <laughs> which is what I did. So, so I stayed in for six years. And as a long soldier at the time, they had, um, they had, they had certain benefits. Yeah, yeah, you had benefits. You were allowed to... I don't remember how many weeks a year to go visit, go back home, to right. visit your family, and and uh, and um, uh, used to get. They had some organization to raise money, gifts for lone soldiers on holidays. Right. So we got a few of those things, and, and uh, but I remember that, that um, I didn't have any complaints about being a lone soldier and having problems because of it. Yeah. I didn't have any problems or complaints about it. No, right. not at all. Not at all. I think sometimes, I, I know, uh, there, I, from my understanding, uh, years ago, the retention rate of keeping soldiers here yeah. uh, was very difficult. Now, the amazing thing is, uh, when you're a lone soldier, um, they, they offer you free tuition after you're done with your service. I think you have to do like three or four years. Uh, that could on be. Well, that, what level of service you're in the military? Yeah, that could be. They didn't have that in my day. And besides, I, I, went, I started the Army. Uh, after I finished my, you know, MA, so my, my uh, ah, your master's degree. Yeah, yeah. So my, wow, I, th- my that, I respect that a great deal. That's amazing. Because most of the time, after you're done with your master's, you want to do your own thing. You know. Well, I, I figured. Look, you got to do the army anyway, so I figured I'd do it in the beginning rather than start working and take a year and a half off and have to do it because there's no way out. You can't delay it forever. Right. Now, were you an Israeli citizen? Sure. You make Aliyah, you become a citizen. Okay, but were you a citizen before you joined the army? Yeah, sure. sure. Okay, I didn't know that. I apologize. Sure, that's all right. Sure. So you make Aliyah, you become a citizen. You're allowed. If I remember. Sorry, I don't know what I don't know what what the rules are today. In those days, you you were allowed to to push off citizenship for I think three years and stay on a on an immigrant visa. Okay. But that doesn't help you with the army because right. the, the amount of the duration of your military service at the time I don't know what it's today is dependent on the age you were when you entered the country. Okay. So if you push it off a few years, you'll do the same you know amount of time, just a little older. So I right. figured I might as well do it in the beginning. Absolutely. And then once I was in, I realized you know there's a lot you can do here. Stuff's pretty interesting. So you served five years. Six, six, eight. Six. You got apologize. Sorry, eighty-three, eighty-nine. And and after the six years were done, then you went back to the states. Well, I got a fellowship at Columbia University, a nice. grad, graduate fellowship, which is a you know once in a once in a lifetime opportunity. I went back for the fellowship, which was great. And then uh, life is such, things don't always, aren't always according to plan. Ended up. We make right. plans and God laughs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I ended up staying in the state twenty uh, some years. I went to law school when I was there. Practiced law for twenty years. Almost. Did you come back and visit during that twenty some years? Yeah, yeah. I was back. I was in touch with people. I came back to visit. And then uh, a few years ago, the uh, situation was such that I wasn't able to come back, and and I did. So here I am. And in that, in that interim period, I spoke and published a lot and spoke a lot, nice. in addition to my law practice. I had this, this side, side activity of, uh, of, of publishing and, uh, and lecture. We have another one. Another one? Can. Ice coffee. Ice coffee. Yeah, me too. Another one? Yeah. So, 
Uh, during this time, this this sounds this may seem like a in, uh, petty question, but it's important for me, and I think it's important for our listeners who love Israel. During this time that you were gone, was there ever this like yearning, like I really want to go back? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, many times, I always wanted to go back, but there were times when there was outright yearning. Yeah, the first real yearning was uh, during the first Gulf War. During the first Gulf War, yeah. yeah I heard when, a lot when, of stories when, about uh, that time. When uh, Saddam Hussein was launching missiles here. Yeah. And, you know, I just wanted to go back into my unit and do whatever, you know, whatever I could. But And then, there, yeah, there was yearning, yearning as opposed to just wanting to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Nice, nice. What was the final push for you to come back this, this what, two years ago? Uh, two and a well, uh, actually, my father passed away a few years ago, so ah, so okay, that, uh, that, that was the last, uh, you know, that's what kept me there. Is he buried here in Israel? No, in the States, he was 95, so uh, you know, he lived a long life, healthy till the end, and, and uh, but by the time you know, certain things worked out, and I was able to come back, he was already too old for me to, right, he didn't want me to leave him, so I you know, couldn't, so that's what happened. Nice. Okay. We're sorry for your loss, sir. Sure. Thank you. But you know what? With that being said, I don't want to say but because that negates everything you said beforehand. Sure. Uh, with that being said, uh, life has its its passings. I'm glad your father lived to, to the age that he did. My father was 57 when he died. No. So uh, God bless your time with your father. That's very. Those are very important years. Um, but we're glad you're back home. Welcome home. Thank you very much. If no one's ever told you in two and a half years. And uh, so now you just, you're just on the lecture circuit, correct? Well, I have a practicing law, law now? I'm practicing law. I got my Israeli law license about 10 months ago. And uh, over the years, I've lectured three, four times a year overseas. In the States, I lectured a lot more often. Okay. But it uh, just so happened in the last six months, I think I gave uh, uh, how many? I don't know, three, four lectures in the last few months, which was a lot. I've never been that concentrated, but that worked out well. Yeah. I spoke at the uh, on a panel at the Council of Europe in Strasbourg on terrorism. Then I was invited uh, uh, a month or two later to speak at the, in Bulgaria on the migrant crisis. Yeah, I got your email on that. Right. Which, uh, I, I, I'll be honest with you, unless we met somewhere, I meet a lot of people. I'm not sure how we came into contact with we, each other. We met, we met, I'll tell you where we met. We met at um, uh, Wings, that little Wings place on Herzl, Herzl Street. I think uh, my mother might have been here during that time. <laughs> that, that I don't remember. Okay. That's where we met because you were... And unfortunately, were... that's a friend of mine that owns that. It's not It's not around anymore. I didn't know that. It's shut down. I remember, and I remember her speaking, you were, you know, her just speaking English. She said, oh, American, how you doing? And that, that's how we met. That's her. Okay. Wow. All right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so you're doing this, uh, this this speaking tour. You, you told me you might have a, a speaking tour, a, a, like an engagement in, in Malta. Yeah, yeah. Which that, is fascinating. That, that, that would be interesting. Malta is an interesting place. I spoke in Monaco a few uh, about a month, a uh, month or so ago, a month or two ago. On uh, uh, it was a wealth management conference. Okay. 
and uh, I was the opening keynote. They wanted me to speak on world affairs and security affecting wealth management. So I spoke on everything but wealth management because that's what the conference is about. Right. And I spoke on uh, security and world affairs and. And, um, you know, people who have what to lose are, are concerned about the state of world affairs. Absolutely. Well, lots of people are, but they, they feel like it might affect them right. a little more. Because what, could, what would you say to people that, because I think all this ties in together, what we're, yeah. the topic we're going to discuss. But, uh, you know, look, my mother's 73, fixed income. She lost, I, I will tell you, as someone that's 45, in the stock market in 2008, I lost a lot of money. In fact, I don't know who was working for me. It was through a company, so the business I was working for. But uh, I lost a lot of money during that time. Right. And, uh, you know, when I made the decision to come here for almost four years ago, you know, my brother who's married with children, one of them's in university, he's got a boat, two cars, a house, swimming pool, all of that. He's like, you should be saving for retirement. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of laughed at him and I said, if I think that far ahead after 2008, it'll drive me insane. Yeah. Because I, 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 I personally, looking, uh, knowing what's coming, yeah. uh, from my perspective, uh, seeing the condition of the world now, I probably. Social Security's broke in the U.S. I probably I don't I don't I can't count on the markets to once I hit in my 60s or 70s. I don't, I, I don't foresee it happening. I don't see the reality in reality. I don't see that that kind of future ahead of me. And that's not gloom and doom. That's just reality. Well, what would you suggest in, in looking at global affairs yeah. and like Brexit and things like that? Yeah. Where do you see the the the, uh, the markets going? I'm not asking to make a big prediction, but in the market forecasting, that's hard. That, that, that's hard. Uh, and that's honesty. Yeah. Well, because there's a lot of people in, in the realm or in that area that they don't live in a reality. Well, put it this way. I, I, uh, I once looked into... Uh, I only did my own little study. I hadn't published it. Maybe I, I should, but I did my own little study on uh, on uh, oil prices and, and, and the Syrian crisis. Okay. Over the last five years. And if you look at the, uh, if you look at a 50-year chart of gold and oil, forget stock market. You know, stock market everybody's sort of familiar with. But look at commodities. 50-year chart of gold and oil. And I tell you, I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't know how people who make these forecasts do their jobs. It's a different field. It's not my field. Right. But but um, you just look at 50-year charts of oil and gold, and and you, you know there are huge spikes in both of them once, and then a couple of smaller ones. But uh, it's 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 it's. Uh, it's hard to understand how the average investor can, can forecast that. Um, you, you look at some of the forecasts people made about the, the, um, the oil market during, during the Syrian crisis, you know, right. with real confidence, and they were all wrong. And um, uh, I mean, the stock market here all the time because people are people just normally invest in stocks, not in commodities. Most people, right. And um, I always found it interesting that 
five o'clock news, they all know what happened during that day in the market. Right. But before the market closes, nobody knows what's going on. So, right. So how is it they know by five o'clock what happened? Why don't they know by two o'clock what happened and just, just invest properly? But they can't. They can only tell you what happens when the market closes. They don't know what's going on during, during the market. Now, one thing I like to do is, in looking at world affairs and, uh, and the markets, and a lot of people... Uh, I, I find it very interesting. Look at China. China is invested in Israel. Yeah. China is invested in Iran. Right. Okay. Uh, Russia the same way. Uh, and China for the past 15 years, uh, maybe more, has been buying up precious metals. Uh, gold, silver, uh, and basically pretty much all the precious metals. Yeah. And it's affected the market, actually. It's in, caused an increase, a spike in the, in the price per ounce, uh, let's specifically on gold. And uh, in spite of the fact the Chinese economy uh, is uh, in a bit of a mess. I mean, they've spent trillions of dollars on building projects uh, around the country as, as a communist country, and we know how that works. Uh, and... Um, they're, they're the least environmentally friendly, and yet they have a million-man army. Uh, they're building islands, man-made islands in the South China Sea, thumbing their nose at the U.S. military successfully, might I add, successfully. Uh, and at the same time, they're aiding North Korea. But you tie all these things together, and, and I believe, uh, look, uh, you've got China and Russia. They're very smart. Because if they can't defeat us militarily, and now I have my doubts about that, if there were an actual war, looking at the condition of the U.S. military, uh, but they're, they're going to hurt us financially. In fact, no matter what we do, no matter who gets in as president, uh, if Hillary gets in, it'll be very bad. But if Donald Trump gets in and writes the wrongs that have been done in trade with the United States, we're getting screwed every day. And I don't like to use that term, but that's what we're, we're getting screwed every day when it comes to trade. But yet if you right the wrong, we're still going to get screwed. Uh, so it's very interesting to see uh, that mix of military and economic might that come together against... Free countries against the West. And I agree with you that Russia and China are very smart, but China even more so. It's interesting that they actually are on, on very good terms with Israel. You wouldn't know it from what they say at the UN, right? But but that's international politics. When it comes to bilateral relations, they're they're fascinated with Israel because they find it difficult to, to understand how a country with 8 million people can can have all the achievements that, that we do. Absolutely. And they have a billion or more people and um, we compete with them. And they, they, they buy our technology. And They're actually building the high-speed rail that's going from Tel Aviv to, to uh, or going from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. They're investing in that. Yeah. Yeah, no, and there's a lot of business in China and Israel. And um, when you meet Chinese businessmen, who's you know, friendly and as you know, normal as can be, but when you hear what they say at the UN, you, you wouldn't know that the two, the 
two sets of people are from, are from the same country. Well, that's so, communist world. That, that's the that's, it's a funny world. Yeah, it is. It, and, and at the same time, they persecute, jail, and even murder Christians in in China and Muslims too in the, in the West China. Western I, part. Uh, yeah. That's another story. Yeah. I'm not. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, I'm not con- so concerned about Islam, but uh, but but uh, reading the Bible in China. It's completely illegal. A lot of people don't really know the extent, and I'm, I'm not trying to veer off, but I think it's an important point for our listeners. Uh, I have read stories where, uh, because the Bible is forbidden, one Bible will be passed around among hundreds of people, and they'll literally take scriptures from the Torah and write them on toilet paper and memorize them. Really? Yeah. It's amazing. Now that I didn't know. It's I truly know. amazing what is happening, and they call it the underground Christian church in China. So Christianity is illegal in China, you say? It's illegal. Really? It's absolutely illegal. Now, just like during the Cold War, uh, yeah, they have the structure of a quote-unquote church, but they have people that go in and infiltrate and monitor everything you say and do. Yeah. Well, you know what they say, you know, China is a a communist country with a capitalist economy. Which and is, they're very which, smart in the way they put it You couldn't say that about the Soviet Union. No. Because under this, during the Soviet days, it was a crime to make a profit. If you ran a small business from your home and made a profit, uh, and if they, you'd be arrested, they would send people in searching for, for criminals like that. Yeah. Because making a profit was considered a crime against the state. Wow. So if you had a certain talent, let's say, I don't know, carpentry, and you just built small things for people and got paid for it. That, that they found the, out you're going to jail. That's a crime against the state. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the amazing thing is even now in Russia, uh, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of Russians, Jews and non-Jews, and I'm in Washington, D.C. I actually went on a date with a Russian girl before I moved here. And I say it was a date she was visiting from Russia, and I, I don't remember how I met her. But we went out one night, and she was telling me, I call him Putler, Putin and Hitler, Putler. <clears throat> but she was telling me, she said, Michael, don't believe what you see in the media. Obviously, I can't, but she said that Vladimir Putin runs all the media in Russia, and when you run the media, that means you have full control over everything, pretty much. Yeah, P- Putin, Putin does run, does. Putin is in control in Russia, yeah. He, he's, he's an interesting uh, character, but he is in control. And, um, like, on one hand, if you're there, you can't cross him. Look at Khodorkovsky, who challenged him for being corrupt and ended up in jail for 10 years. At the same, at the same time, Putin is actually sort of pro-Israel because... Um, he, 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 but he's helping Iran. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, com- it's complicated. Putin, Putin wishes us well. He has no ill feelings towards us. And... and, and um, there are, you know, a million Russian Jews here or so, and he views Russian Jews as, like, his Russian brethren. So he... he Which means... Yeah. Can I translate that? Go right ahead. There's Russians in Crimea, yeah. so I view them as our Russian brothers, so we're going to take the Crimea. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't... Well, I, I, I understand your viewpoint. I think Russia eventually will focus on this country. It's two things. It's historical, it's part of his character, and it's also prophecy. Well, I don't I don't I don't think Russia's gonna like 
take, try to take over Israel. Let's see, Crimea used to be part of Russia. Right, it was given away by Brezhnev. Right, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was part of Russia, and and um, and, and the, the, the people in Crimea viewed themselves as Russians. Right. And you know, were as happy as can be when Russia took over. Right. So that that's that's a complicated situation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's. Uh, and, and, you know, but Putin thinks a million Russian Jews here. He wants the best for them. He doesn't want them harm. On the other hand, he supports Iran and Syria and, and, and Hezbollah. Yeah, and he well, he doesn't not directly. In their area. he doesn't, but he knows that Iran and Syria are supporting Hezbollah. He knows that. Yeah. But he also knows, I, I suspect, very strongly. He also knows that Israel can, can defend itself against the weaponry that, that the Hezbollah gets from Iran and Syria, which is ultimately from Ru- Russia. From Russia. He, he knows that too, and um, there, he knows that there have been certain weapon shipments that Israel just won't tolerate the Hezbollah having, and Israel destroyed them on the way. So, so you know, he. he, he uh, Leading the Way features the Bible-teaching ministry of Dr. Michael Youssef, the founding pastor of the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta. I hope that you'll make plans to join us each week when we're privileged to share two recent messages that I know will encourage you in your faith. You'll also learn more about the worldwide outreach of Leading the Way to more than 200 countries and in more than 20 different languages. So join us right here for Leading the Way. Since the first squabble between Cain and Abel, two biblical brothers, there's been tension which leads to fighting. It's a cruel contest of the wills, usually produced by pride. But most fighting brings only further frustration. The first known gladiatorial contest took place in Rome in 264 B.C., featuring three pairs of armed fighters. The last historical clash was supposedly when Constantine abolished the gladiator shows in A.D. 325. However, fighting among families, nations, employers, and persons has never ceased. The Bible tells us to bear with each other, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do we do this? No. Must we do this? Yes. Our lack of love and our fear of failure leads us to fight for our rights. But the truth is that we have to surrender our rights to Christ, who gave his life to replace our strife. This is John Bryan bringing you today's key word. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. At this juncture, if you if you have a, an exact number or even a, a rough estimate, how many people have actually immigrated from the Middle East and North Africa to uh, Europe in the past year? Uh, the past year, well, certainly hundreds of thousands. Uh, I don't know if it's reached a million. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, I imagine that information or estimates of the exact numbers are, are not uh, are public, not secret. But it's a lot of people. Um, you know, millions have tried and have been turned back. 
But it's certainly hundreds of thousands that have managed to get through. Um, On top of the millions of Muslims that are already there in Western Europe. Yes. yes. Look, it's, it's, um, it's a complicated situation. 10% of France is Muslim and they're having their problems there. 10% of Bulgaria is Muslim and they're not having any problems. So, I think it's because the governments keep a boot on the neck of the Muslims. No, no I think, I think uh, it's more social. I, I think, I think the, the Muslims in Bulgaria you know, feel naturally more at home. And Look, Bulgaria is a smaller country. There's a population of 11, 12 million, I think, and France is uh, 50 million or so, right. 60 million. But, but um, I think it has a bigger impact when you say 10% Muslim. We don't think that's a big deal. But when you're talking about when you use the word millions, uh, I think that's a that's a, a number that hits home more, uh, especially when you consider non-integration uh, into a society. Right. There, there are those who, who do not want to integrate, and there are those who who, uh, who do. I was in Marseille uh, uh, a few months ago, two months ago, and Marseille is a uh, is, a, is a, a city in France with the highest Muslim population. And if you get off at the train station and you walk in the center of town there, you know. Um, I mean, I've said to Europeans, you know, I, I, I go to Muslim neighborhoods in, in, in European cities. Uh, it reminds me of Israel, so I feel at home. Because here, they're, they're at, <laughs> that's scary. <laughs> here, well, look, you do, when you live here, you see Arabs everywhere, and, and it's not unusual. And, you know, it's not an unusual thing. So it doesn't bother me. I'm used to it. But then again, Europeans are different. They're not used to it. So I wouldn't want to be used to it if I was a European. I mean, when you think about the Muslim culture here in the Middle East, it's very savage. Uh, and I say that in this sense. Women are lower than cattle. That's what the Quran states. Uh, and the only thing a woman's good for is breeding. Now, the Muslims here have a... Slightly, ever so slightly different mindset, only because if they were put in charge, every Jew would be murdered. Uh, and your military and your government does a pretty good job of keeping keeping them quelled and trying to push them to adjust to a, a what's what's the word I can use? This is my perspective, of course. Uh, tries to push them towards uh, normalcy, which is. Uh, a very hard thing to do. I can't imagine. I, I've heard stories from uh, French Jews, which is France is almost emptying itself of the Jewish people because of the amount of persecution there from the Muslims. Uh, but I would have a very hard time walking down the street and seeing nothing but Middle Eastern culture, knowing what Middle Eastern culture is like all around me, that is non-conformed. Uh, or is a subculture in my country? Well, look, Middle Eastern culture is a, a, a very general term. You know, it could be all different types. Islamic. Let me say Islamic well, the culture. Same thing. Islamic culture can mean one thing in in, 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 in different neighborhoods within a, within a Muslim country. It can mean different things. You know, it's. it's 
a lot more complicated than that. Uh, it, it, I was in Marseille, Marseille, for example. Across the street from my hotel was a, a Muslim uh, coffee house. And one night, there were, I don't know, a couple of weather was nice to you know, a couple of dozen outdoor tables and must have been 50, 60 guys sitting outdoors drinking coffee and watching a soccer game and, you know, nobody, nobody seemed to be bothered by it, you know, they were, they were, it, it, it didn't look like Paris, it looked, or France, it looked like a, a Muslim. Meanwhile, all the 9-11 but, hijackers went to a strip club the night before. <laughs> Yeah, well. So what's seemingly normal, you know, obviously can be something else many times. Now, how many times have you had the chance to travel and and uh, and go into a lot of these Muslim communities in, in Europe? A good number of times. First, uh, I want to see for myself. What Did you wear your keeper? No. no. Because... Uh, <laughs> they still are. It doesn't many it doesn't many how many people uh, aren't going to care whether you're wearing it or not. There still is a bit of a danger of those who do who, do, who, do, who will find it as an excuse. To you start. incite one Muslim, you've incited them all. No, not them all. No, I mean uh, you can you can incite a mob, but but then on the other hand, there'll be others who are going to try to help you get out of it. It was a 60 Minutes crew that went into uh, a city in. I think it was Sweden, I think. And they, they, they put the out, the outtake, it wasn't on 60 Minutes, they put the outtake on on YouTube. Somehow it got on YouTube. And they just entered that neighborhood and, and a couple of Muslims split up with them. And the police officer said, it's better that I don't go with you because if they see me, it'll incite them even more. So they went in and they got things thrown at them and pushed around. And, and then other Muslims came and tried to protect them. And then they left. And, you know, so, so uh, yeah, there is a problem. There, there, there are... Uh, there are neighborhoods where, where it's, it's dangerous to walk around wearing yarmulke or being identified as a religious Jew. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. With all of this immigration taking place, I'm going to ask you a surface question. Because uh, they're going to get more detailed. With this immigration that's taking place and the birth rate, now there's more mosques than churches in Western Europe. Uh, is that true? Absolutely. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I haven't heard that. But that's... On Insight to Israel, we never speak a mistruth or give our opinion. Yeah, okay. We give the truth. All right. <laughs> If this continues, what what do you see? Because you hear a lot of jokes. A lot of Israelis I talk to, they laugh. They actually mock the Europeans, which I mock the Europeans too. I don't have much use for most of them. Uh, simply because, uh, anyway, the most Israelis, they kind of laugh and they say the Europeans are getting back what they put out. The, the, the Europeans don't realize what, what they've gotten themselves into. Because a lot of European politics today and, and the European organizations that they've created since World War II is, is in response to 
a thousand years of, of bloody European history. Yeah. And and uh, now they're sort of not sort of now now they're trying to compensate and going too far in the other direction. Overcompensate. Over overcompensate. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I think that they they have a problem on their hands because if you want to let people in, then let them in. You can't let them in and then tell them how to live and try to change them. If you don't like the way they are, then don't let them in. But if you can let them in, then let them live. Uh, the problem with that is, is that the reality is they've been warned for 30 years yeah. and they called you a bigot and a racist yeah. and Islamophobe, a hater if you tried to tell them this is what's going to happen yeah. well look the American the Amer for example the American experience is completely different because, because despite the problems in America on, on average uh, you know, most American Muslims are above average uh, on the socioeconomic level and, and uh, despite the fact that there are, there are very problematic American Muslim organizations most of them yeah most of them uh, the, 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 a lot of the grassroots like, people who, who, who are not involved with these organizations do cooperate with the FBI and law enforcement and they're not they don't want to see terrorism uh, uh, but but, but uh, Europe, Europe, they're not going, and you know, over the generations, I don't mean the last 10, 20 years, but over the, you know, decades when Muslims came to America, they came because they wanted to be Americans. Like, like, uh, lots of people. Europe, they're coming because they want to, they just want to. They want to take over. A lot of them want to take over. A lot of them want to live there because life is better and just keep their own, uh, and not, not integrate. <laughs> They want a subculture within a culture. That's exactly what they want. But 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 then life won't be so great. Now the crazy thing is, I've seen a lot of uh, videos, uh, and these videos aren't coming from the media. They're coming from individuals that go out on the street and video. And these these Muslims are demanding housing, food, money, a car. <laughs> Healthcare. I just actually did an interview, and I won't say his name, uh, with a German officer. And I was very intrigued because when I first talked to him, it, uh, we, this, our conversation was off the off the off camera. You know, it was off the record, uh, and I won't say his name. But I found it very interesting because I'm not a journalist. I don't see myself as a journalist. I think journalism is completely dead, buried, burned, gone. Because there's no honesty in the media. It's all a lie. Most of it, 90% of it is a lie. Uh, and I say that out of experience for as long as I've worked in politics and, and everything. But I consider myself a Zionist activist. Uh, when I first told him what I did, he was kind of cautious in speaking with me, even off, the, off, off camera. Uh, but then when I once I shared fully what my views were on the world and what I saw uh, and, and on history and what I see happening today and what's going to happen in the future, it's not hard to predict what is going to happen in the future. This is very simplistic. We make it complicated because, in my view, uh, 
we make it complicated because we don't want to really get to the core truth about what is happening. And many times, like they say, oh, this thing here in Israel, the Palestinians, if they actually existed, uh, they're just simply Muslims. And, and the Jews, this is so complicated. It's not that complicated. The Koran calls for the murder of Jews. They're doing what the Koran says. And uh, this is not a Palestinian Jewish thing. This is, a, uh, this is a Muslim Jewish thing. And all the Muslims outside of here, as they incite and grow stronger, it encourages the Muslims in Israel, citizens or non-citizens, to fulfill their obligation in order to get to heaven. And with that being said, I interviewed this guy. I really got off there on a tangent. <laughs> but uh, I'm speaking to this guy, and once he gets comfortable with me, he tells me how he really feels. And he's like, listen, I'm a German officer. I'm seeing what's happening in Europe and in my country. And he said... People are sick and tired of it, and they want all of them gone, which I think is the right view to have. Well, look, I, I, I've been saying for a while for that, uh, you know, I've been using the phrase, I, I, it's not what I want, but, I've been, but I, I think there's going to be blood, and, sooner or later there's going to be blood in the street. You're right. I don't, I don't mean from terrorist attacts, I mean from Muslim general clashes between Muslims and locals. So Muslims walk around on you know, morality patrols other, and the locals are going to just get fed up with it sooner or later and they're going to they're going to clash. Uh, look, in a, you, you can't do in America or in Israel what, what's done in Europe. You know, in European countries that ban Islamic uh, traditional dress or Switzerland, you can't mosques can't have the minarets, right? You can't do that in America or in uh, Israel. They do it in Europe because they want Euro Europeans to view themselves as Europeans. And Europeans apparently aren't open to having this kind of difference amongst themselves. Right. Even though they let the people in. If, in America, you know, that Muslims come in and nobody's going to tell them how to dress or how, how, how to build their mosques. Right. It won't happen. But uh, Europe is different. And we're going to pay a very heavy price for that in the United States because they're using our freedom of religion against us. And while you have a small percentage, about 1%, uh, and I hate it when the media focuses on that 1% and gives them all this credit, and then, quite honestly, sir, we're made to feel obligated to kiss their backside and say, look, look, there's one Muslim on our side out of billions, and we can't make them mad because otherwise that one Muslim out of billions will not be on our side. And we need that one Muslim. Our life is dependent. Our society is dependent on that one Muslim. And what's happening is in the U.S., when they want to build multi-billion dollar mosques and buy up all this land, and the Koran says, wherever you can hear that call to prayer, no matter how far away, that land has been claimed for Allah. And uh, now, Allah owns it all anyway, in their view. But now we're actually claiming it. And so what's happening is when the people vote against it in these towns like Tennessee and Kentucky uh, and Indiana, and they say, we don't want a mosque here, and I, I understand completely uh, why they don't want a mosque. And there shouldn't, I, my perspective, uh, because we understand, I understand the mentality of Islam and, and what the Quran says. 
then the Muslims intentionally attack the construction of their own buildings and then claim Islamophobia and say, look what the Kefir or the non-Muslims or the infidels have been doing to us. They're persecuting us. And so this is how they gain that, that foothold legally over over these towns uh, because then you get all these leftist groups that come into their aid and uh, so now they're building their multi-million dollar mosque where they speak against the United States and against Christians and against Israel and against Jews in general but they don't call them mosques they call them cultural centers yeah. How many do you see? A, do they call them cultural centers in Europe, or do they call them mosques? Uh, tell you the truth, I don't know because in Europe, uh, every, look, I imagine in Europe, you know, every country has its own language and style. I don't, I don't, I don't know what, what they call them. I imagine, I imagine that they have both, but I really don't know if it's the same. Dynamic is in the states, in Islamic cultural centers, um, uh, or Islamic society of this uh, area, Islamic cultural center of that, and for all practical purposes, it's a mosque. Where they just don't use the word mosque in the name of the, of the building. I don't, I don't know if they have that here. Couldn't tell you. Now, what, when you do these lectures, what's the response of your? of your audience? Uh, well, there are people who agree with me, and the people who don't agree with me, uh, if I may say so, uh, get a little frustrated because they, they, they're, they're not really all that good at trying to catch me and making me look bad, which is what they people who think like that normally try to do. They're on a, they're on a campaign to get people who say anything about Islamic terrorism and try to make them seem like Islamophobes and all that. And, and uh, it happens happened often enough. That after I speak, you know, there'll be one or two or a couple of Muslims in the audience that come up to me somewhere quietly say, you know, thank me for saying it because now I'm talking about the problem without, you know, making everybody think that we're all terrorists because it's, it's not the case, you know. There, but they can't really say it because they're gonna, they're afraid of repercussions from within their own communities. So I've, I've had a number of occasions where Muslims have thanked me for talking about the problem of Islamic terrorism. Now, let me ask you, uh, you have many facets to Islam. You have, the, you have the militant arm of Islam or the terrorist side. You have the ideological side. You have the, the dietary side. You have the governmental side. Uh, you have the family side, the religious side. You have all these aspects of Islam. As Islam grows, in spite of the fact these folks are thanking you because they don't want to be labeled as the militant arm of Islam, when many of the Muslims, especially in Europe, come, aren't they taken over culturally anyway? I mean, they wouldn't have to have, like Muammar Gaddafi said, you don't need suicide bombers. We're just going to outbreed you and overtake your culture. No, no, not, all, no, not all of them are taking over. No. Some, of them, some of them come because they just know it's a, it's a better life. And, and uh, they're not looking to take over. They're make a living and support the families like everybody else. They're, they're not all there. But what happens when Islam takes over that? Do you think those same Muslims would be... I don't know if it's going to take over. I, I think Europe presented for problems that I, I don't know how to... Uh, I can't really foresee. I, I mean, not, 
they're, they're going to have problems. They, they, have, they already have problems, but their problems are going to get worse. But but the, the Europeans aren't going to disappear, no matter how strong the radical Muslim community there gets. The Europeans are still going to be there. Um, so so uh, they're not going to conquer Europe. No? No, they're not, they're not going to conquer Europe. No. Okay. European, look, there are 800 million Europeans. You know, the overall majority are Christian. So, but when there's more mosques than there are churches, are they Christian? I mean, you can be Christian in name, yeah. but not in deed. You can still be Jewish. That's the difference between you and I. Yeah. You can, no matter what I do, you know. Christianity is a choice. No matter what you do, you'll never get away from being a Jew, even if right. you're not religious. Right. So that's, you know. Right. So uh, when you find there are more in Western Europe more mosques than churches, I would say there's an identity crisis there with Christianity. Uh, well, I, I find that an in, interesting statistic. I'm, I'm going to look into that because I. I uh, I understand on your radio show you only tell the truth, but, but uh, I've never heard that one before. I'm yeah. going to look into it. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, but um, I, I, I just can't imagine Europeans disappearing because the, the, most, the radical Muslim community gets stronger. Europeans are still going to be there. They're, they're not disappearing. Can I so, challenge you? Sure, go ahead. No military exists yeah. without the support of the civilians. Right. And you see the support for, I, we call it in the West, and I'm not contradicting you, I'm, uh, I'm adding my, my point of view. Uh, there is no radical Islam. Muhammad murdered and raped little children. He married Aisha at six years old. Child brides still take place all over the Middle East, even here in Israel. Child brides. Right. He married Aisha at six and consummated the relationship at nine. Uh, Muhammad raped and murdered his way across the Arabian Peninsula. So when I see violence out of Islam, it is historically accurate to say that when the West uses terms like radicalized, no, he's obedient to the Quran. Muhammad murdered. They murdered. It should be no surprise. So, if this were true, if they were just a small portion, they couldn't exist if the civilian population didn't support them. Am, am I correct? Like, the Israeli military couldn't exist if it weren't for the support of this civilian right, population. Right. I mean, true, the, the military needs support of its population. In, in normal countries, in dictatorships like the Soviet Union, I don't think nobody had opinions, so you weren't allowed. <laughs> You weren't allowed to have your own opinion, so I don't know if the military even knew if people had different opinions. I remember speaking, you know, knowing Russians during the Soviet time who managed to come to the States for a while, and, and the things that they actually thought were true because they didn't have a free press were, was, you know, scary. Okay, so, uh, so it's very true that in, in free countries, um, uh, the, the, civilian, the, the, the military needs, needs to know that the, the people they're fighting for are support what they're doing and behind them. But but the, the the issue about Muhammad and his behavior and his actions, I, I think, is more complicated than uh, it's too complicated for this radio show because there's there are there are enough, well, people can't see the rumor in, but there, there's enough material on this issue, books and papers, to, to, to fill this room right. on whether or not. Um, 
what he was doing was just for the purposes of winning wars, which took place in those days, not only in Arabia, but, but among Christians in Europe, too. The Catholic Church. Uh, oh, yeah, they were, they were, they were far worse than, than Islam throughout the centuries, yeah. I have to say. And, and, um, and uh, you, know, you know, morality was different then than it was today. Things were different then than it was today. And, and, and historically, uh, historically, over 1,500 years, Muslim societies were, were relatively peaceful. Once Muslim armies conquered an area, um, things were relatively peaceful there, as opposed to uh, when, when the when the uh, when Christian armies conquered, and then then there were then there well, were, the Christians were either forced to convert or charged to just attacks. Yeah. When Islam reigned, and the Jews uh, were charged with Jews attacks, uh, unadded tax, heavily taxed, very heavily taxed and persecuted. Yeah. Uh, when Islamic uh, rule was imposed, um, and obviously the Muslims never stayed in the, within the confines of their own Muslim countries; they were seeking to conquer other territories. Uh, and I think that's why we saw the Crusades. Because the Catholic Church was pushing back on the invasion of Islam into Europe. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Crusades was a counterattack. At the same time... Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, the Crusades were, was a counterattack, but at the same time, it was a lot more brutal than it had to be. Yeah. I mean, look at 1204, right? The, the, the Crusaders were on their way to Palestine, and that was, 1204 was the fourth crusade. And they figured they'll step off at Constantinople and destroy the, the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, and, and uh, which is what they did. Right. And they and, and they uh, they didn't have the the uh, the energy to continue on to Palestine. That's when in 1453, when the Ottoman Empire conquered Istanbul, Constantinople and changed it into Istanbul. They expected to find a lot more riches there. It turns out they were gone because the Roman Catholic Crusaders stole it in 1204. So, 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 so a lot was going on there. So, true, the, the Crusades was, was a counterattack, but they were a lot bloodier than they needed to be just to win. And you didn't have that in Islamic societies. After they conquered, things were reasonably, reasonably uh, civil. You know. But people, non-Muslims, turned out to be slaves. Though. I mean, look, look what the look what the Muslims did in Africa. They actually sold the African slaves to the Europeans. I know we're moving forward in history, but we had the Barbary pirates yeah. who were attacking. We used uh, yeah. about seventy-five percent of our GDP under Thomas Jefferson to fight against yeah, the Barbary, Barbary pirates. pirates. Yeah. Well, everybody knows what's been going on in Darfur uh, the last 10 years, but 100 years ago you had Arab Muslims killing African Muslims in Sudan, and, and uh, Darfur predated Sudan by a few hundred years. Amazing. So you had a Darfur of African Muslims, peaceful and normal, you know, 250 years before Sudan was created, and then when the Arab Muslims took over, they, they 